The following podcast contains naughty language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 31st, 2022. On this week's show, Jack Hamilton is back to talk about how the Warriors and Celtics made it through the conference finals and what to look for in the NBA finals. Then baseball writer Bradford William Davis will join us for a couple of segments about suspensions. First, the Yankees' Josh Donaldson got a one-game penalty for calling baseball's biggest black star, the White Sox Tim Anderson, Jackie. Then, on Tommy Pham getting forced to sit out three games for slapping Jock Peterson over an extremely intricate fantasy football dispute. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Stefan Fatsis is off this week, but you know who's back? Live mm-hmm. on tape yep. from California. Mm-hmm. Slate staff writer, host of not one but two seasons of Slow Burn, Mr. Joel Anderson. Hey, what's up, man? Glad to be back. You all miss me? I missed you. We, I think Stefan missed you too. I know Stefan missed you. No, yeah, was, but Stefan missed me. I heard from Stefan while I was off. You know, not 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 from you and Kevin so much, but that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll live with it. But that's okay. We all we all express our uh, missing you in, in in our own ways. But no, it's so so great to see you again. So great to have you back on the show. Yeah, man. Yeah, I was uh, off. Uh, for people that don't know, I uh, had my first little baby. Uh, well, I guess my wife actually had the baby, and. Uh, uh, and I'm I'm here to assist. Uh, but yes, uh, I was on the first stint of my parental leave, and it was uh, not exactly vacation, but it was good to be off and get to learn how to do this thing and see how it works. Uh, lucky kid, and we're lucky to have you back too. Thanks, man. Game one of the NBA Finals starts Thursday night, late Thursday night if you're on the East Coast, between the Boston Celtics and the host Golden State Warriors. To get there, the Warriors closed out the Dallas Mavericks in five games in the Western Conference Finals. And in the East, the Celtics messed around and lost a late lead, but managed to hold on and beat the Heat in Miami in Game 7. That set up a finals between two of the league's premier franchises, its oldest standard bearer against its latest dynasty. Today, we bring back our good friend Jack Hamilton, who's been writing about the NBA's playoffs for Slate. He is also Slate's pop critic and an associate professor of American studies in media studies at the University of Virginia, and the author of Just Around Midnight, Rock and Roll, and the Racial Imagination. Thanks for joining us today, Jack. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me back. Of course. So in your most recent piece for Slate titled What the Golden State Warriors Have to Fear, you wrote, The future appears bright in Golden State, but it's nothing like the present. And no amount of foresight can stop the fact that the greatest NBA teams are always unique and finite occurrences. There won't be anything quite like this Warriors team ever again. So, Jack, do you think the finals will be a coming out party or a curtain call for these Warriors? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. You know, that's why they play the games, as they say. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I mean, what the Warriors are trying to do is, like, pretty astonishing if they're able to do it. You know, like, this is their first title that they won with this group was now uh, eight seasons ago. Um, And it's basically, yeah, I mean, this is the core of this team is pretty similar to the core of the team that won their first title back in 2015, you know, with Steph Curry, uh, Draymond Green, and Klay Thompson all still there, all still playing at a fairly high level. So yeah, you know, if they win, I think it will establish them as kind of one of the great dynasties that the sport has seen. And, 
you know, unfortunately, I think if they lose, there's probably going to be, you know, the the requisite chatter about, you know, not being able to get it done without Kevin Durant, for instance, you know, who was there for the for the last titles. And, you know, there's always been these sort of weird, um, I don't know, sort of people whispering about Steph's, you know, quote unquote legacy. I think if the Warriors win, it will establish certainly this core and, and specifically Steph Curry is probably, you know, top 10 player of all time, pretty convincingly. And I think if, if they don't win, um, yeah, it's, it'll, it'll be interesting to look back on how this team is remembered, particularly because they're getting older, you know, and it's like there's really no guarantee, as I kind of mentioned in the, in the piece you quoted, like there's no guarantee that they're going to be able to get back there a whole bunch more times. I mean, maybe they will be, but we don't know. The thing that's um, fascinating about this Warriors team, and we can bring in the Celtics too, is that uh, you know neither of these teams are one of the greatest teams of all time, or one of the greatest teams of the last ten years. Um, and we've talked about it during these playoffs a bunch, Jack, about how this feels kind of like a bookend to the super team era that the Heat started and those transcendent heat teams the warriors team with kevin durant i I think we would all probably imagine that those teams would would be either of the teams that are in these finals and yet both the warriors and the celtics of, of 2022 are kind of a testament to something more enduring and something that feels more kind of solid and independent of era and that you know, both gets at um, the the fact that you have this core of the Warriors that's been there for eight years. There's something like very kind of solid. There's a foundation there that has led to championships. And then with the Celtics, Jack, you have this team where for years now, there's been kind of hammering away at this idea of, you know, should we keep Tatum and Brown together? Um, are the Celtics like screwing up this amazing haul of draft picks that they had by not adding a superstar player? And so, you know, both teams in their own ways just feel like a kind of answer to the question of how to build a team and how to build it to last. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, the Celtics, this is certainly, I mean, the Celtics are a young team, but this does still feel, have the feeling of them kind of getting over a hump that they had, you know, this team has been to the conference finals a number of times with Tatum and and Brown and haven't, uh, this is the first time they've been able to break through to the finals. But yeah, I think you're right that we are seeing at least a lull in the quote unquote super team era. I mean, we certainly have super teams still, you know, in the Clippers, for instance, or uh, the Nets, uh, uh, you know, you could say the Lakers probably too, but you know they all—they all were various shades of uh, disappointment <laughs> this year. But yeah, the the Celtics definitely, you know, are mostly a homegrown team. Um, in terms of having drafted most of their core players and really developed them. And so are the Warriors. You know, this is certainly something Draymond, Clay, and Steph have been, you know, they've only played for that that one team their whole careers. And certainly both teams have have made some very good additions. You know, I mean, Al Horford has been really invaluable for the Celtics in his second stint with the team. And sam- similarly, um, the Warriors adding Andrew Wiggins, who's been, you know, a really tremendous contributor. We talked about him last week as someone 
someone who, um, you know, they acquired via a trade, a, a trade that was second guessed by some people at the time and, and, and has just turned out to look completely brilliant. Um, so, yeah, there's certainly, there, you know, these are teams that have had some changes, but there's, there's also a lot of stability with them. To build on that point, like I've always sort of talked about if you have a really good team to just lean into it, right? That you, There's no need to tear apart a team that has a superstar or so and maybe some pieces around them and maybe they fall short one year. And I think kind of the Celtics and the Warriors are good examples of that because there was a lot of, especially out here in the Bay, like after the last couple of years, they're like, oh, well, maybe Steph should move on and they should try to rebuild the team. And uh, with the Celtics, you know, they ran up against, you know, so many other great teams for so long and maybe they should start over and trade their core or whatever. And I'm always like, that's dumb because you just never know What's going to happen? You don't know who's going to get hurt in what year, what opportunity is going to emerge, you know, what what players are going to start clicking and finally the light comes on. Um, don't you think that kind of this final sort of is a good example of that? Because nobody would think that these Warriors or Celtics teams are the best versions of the teams that they've ever been, but they caught some breaks and here they are. But it, And it's not even um, that they kept themselves to that together. It's like a step further than that. And you kind of alluded to it, Jack. It's like they kind of reconstituted themselves even further by like getting Al Horford again and getting Daniel Tice again. And <laughs> so like really leaning in hard to not just staying together, but like becoming even more themselves than they ever were before. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's happened with the Celtics is really is pretty remarkable. You know, this was a team that was very disappointing in the first part of the season, as I say that as a as a Bostonian. Um, and yeah, that was certainly something that, you know, the, the turnaround that they've made, but it has been, yeah, as Joel was mentioning, like, it's a testament to, I think, kind of staying the course and patience. And, you know, it's been really amazing to see the development of some of the younger players, you know, Robert Williams and Grant Williams, um, who are guys that they drafted, you know, in sort of the late first round. And the I think Celtics fans and the organization always, you know, believed in their heart that these guys could become really, really good players. And it's actually happened, you know, and they haven't, they didn't give up on them. They didn't, they didn't give up on Jason Tatum and uh, Jalen Brown being able to play together, which was certainly, you know, earlier this season, there was a lot of consternation about, you know, whether those guys can play together and things like that. Um, and certainly Marcus Smart, who's, you know, the longest, I think, I think he's the longest tenured Celtic and someone who they drafted um, back in 2014, and who's just been with the team the whole time and has been this really, you know, kind of steadying influence. And it's just, there is something really validating, I think, about seeing these guys break through. But, you know, the, the Warriors, it's absolutely right. You know, the Warriors, as as Joel was saying, there was, you know, this idea of like, oh, are they too old? Do they need to rebuild? And the, the organization had pursued this pretty interesting strategy of trying to inject younger players into, you know, around the core three. Um, so you have, you know, a rookie like Jonathan Kuminga, who's really, really exciting. Um, and it's pretty rare that you have a team that, you know, is this good, um, that also has like an exciting lottery pick who's a rookie. So yeah, they're both very interesting and impressive kind of experiments in team building and also just team maintenance. And, right, and it's not like the Warriors were perfect in getting this right, um, because they picked James Wiseman when they could have had LaMelo Ball. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like imagine, yeah. how, imagine how different that team looks even if they have LaMelo Ball instead of Wiseman, who's not even playing for them right now, right? Yeah, I mean, Wiseman could still end up being um, a guy that 
carries them forward, you know, three to five years. What do you from mean? Now. Like, Whereas, by, by, like, by getting, you know, get, you know, getting some picks for him or something? Or what do you mean? Like, well it actually doesn't like Lamella ball is an amazing amazing player it seems hard to imagine that the warriors would be much better with him than they are with jordan Poole. um it's just like he he would be like probably a better fit on the celtics (laughs) than he would be on on the warriors but yeah i mean you're you're obviously right that wiseman has been has done nothing for them and yet um they're they are where they are um before we kind of linger too much on uh on the future i want to go back to the celtics nearly Mm. blowing game seven against the heat (laughs) and just like the absolute like confluence of of narrative and we've talked we've talked about this before too just like the degree to which players are perhaps even more conscious and self-conscious about narrative than even like fans and pundits are. I think of Jason Tatum wearing the Kobe Bryant number 24 <laughs> armband during the game. So I like Jason Tatum. I followed his career since he was in high school, but I mean, that's just, come on. I mean, yeah. I like him a little bit less after he, <laughs> after he did that. Like obviously Kobe Bryant meant so much to this generation of, of players and everyone has taken his death extremely hard. And so it's, it's, it's not, it, it feels a little bit churlish, you know, even with all the, uh, compl- shall we say, complexity of Kobe Bryant's legacy to um, really hit him too hard for that. But it's just like, I, I, I will never forget Kobe Bryant shooting six for 24 <laughs> to lead the Lakers to a win over the Celtics in game seven of the NBA finals. And I, I believe that was against the Celtics. Was I it not? Not Jack? <laughs> It's it's so, but Jack, isn't it so funny how like players' legacies and teams' legacies get sort of like re- remixed and refashioned in such a short amount of time? Because I would guess that in 2010 we were probably having a very different conversation about Kobe Bryant and the Lakers and the Celtics, and to imagine that the Celtics' best player would in 2022 be wearing an armband of the Lakers best player Kobe Bryant as some sort of signifier of like game 7 greatness and clutchness and would then lead his team to victory over a player who played way better than anyone on the Celtics in game 7 and yet missed the three-pointer at the end Jimmy Butler and then did not win the new Larry Bird Eastern Conference MVP <laughs> award despite clearly being the best player in the series. It's just like a, a very interesting set of like data points on like how we remember and talk about players and games instantly and then kind of in the very recent past. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I'm old enough to remember, <laughs> you know, Kobe's own like really, really cloying obsession with Michael Jordan, mm. you know, and like that just, I remember at the time just feeling like that was like so corny how obsessed he was with Jordan and sort of paying all these tributes to him. So it's now kind of weird seeing this new, and it, you're totally right. This generation of players is completely obsessed with with Kobe Bryant. You know, it's not just Tatum, it's Devin Booker and a, a lot of other guys as well kind of worship him. Um, is it like sort of a, a rock and roll thing of just like when guys die at a particular age in a particular um, moment, then they 
I don't think so, because I, I feel like he had a hold over his contemporaries and the, the generation that came right mm. after him in a way that even LeBron doesn't, right? That there's a lot of mythology yeah. Yeah, that's true. around totally. him that's that true. just, that just, uh, that nobody else seemingly can touch, um, or has been able to touch since then, right? Yeah, totally. And and part of it was very cultivated by Kobe. I mean, to his credit, like he did spend a lot of time with young players, you know, and took on this role of being sort of a mentor figure to a bunch of these guys. Um, but yeah, he does have a, a, a very specific uh, position kind of in the firmament of, 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 you know, old star players. Um, and I think certainly his, you know, tragic death uh, contributed to that. But I, I, I 100% agree with Joel that it was it was very much there prior to his death. I mean, I think the death has put it into a, a sort of different register. But yeah, he was certainly someone who was a touchstone for a lot of these younger players for, for a very long time prior to that. Jack, as a guy who, you know, longtime Celtics fan, whatever, right? Did you think the Jimmy Butler shot was going to go in when he took it? <laughs> Man, I was I I was just in such a state watching that fourth quarter. I ended up rewatching it again the next morning uh, just because I was like I I was like emotionally so <laughs> on overdrive. Yeah, I mean I I think my heart was you know in my throat when he took that shot. Um, it's the kind of game that like. <laughs> not to sound like Bill Simmons or something, but like if you're a Boston sports fan, like that kind of game, you're like, oh my god, we're just gonna lose. Like this is like it feels oh, that the, way. No, no, Wait, to, no haven't the Celtics won like? The yeah, haven't the Celtics <laughs> won a million? A million uh, championships. And and wait, Boston sports fans, haven't they been successful in other sports recently? <laughs> yeah, Screw you. Know, I mean, like, what a yeah. stupid what a stupid thing to say. My earliest sports you. memory is the nineteen eighty six World Series. So that's oh, like, you know, you Come got on. that. <laughs> Get over it. Get over it. No, but yeah, so I mean I was definitely um I mean, especially with Butler who'd been so good in that series, like when he put that shot up. Yeah, I mean, I think I was sort of surprised that it that it didn't go in. And I was surprised that the Celtics you know, despite their best efforts seemingly to <laughs> lose that game, you know, snatch victory from the jaws of defeat or whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, thank God that shot didn't go in, honestly. I'm like, I will confess, despite being oh. uh, not a fan of the whole Boston, oh, <laughs> let's say um, that I do like, the, I do like Tatum and Brown. I like the Celtics team. And also, it's just going to be so much better of a series. Yeah. Like watching the Heat, like, try to make a shot against the Warriors. I mean, these playoffs have been a disappointment since the first round. And, you know, the Celtics certainly have it in them to play badly. We've seen that repeatedly throughout these playoffs. and they, But they also have it in them to make other teams look bad, too. Um, and, and so it, it's something that um, I think anticipation should be high. Hopefully, unlike other series, it will live up. To the anticipation, um, but you know the the Warriors seem like kind of the the betting mm-hmm. favorite. The analytical favorite is the Celtics. Um, you know, it's it it will be interesting to see what happens, and hopefully, will be interesting stylistically too. Yeah, definitely. I think you know, I think there's a consensus ar- around most uh, basketball fans who've been watching these playoffs. I would say that you know, especially when you factor in injuries and things like that, that I think these are the two the two best teams. That this is definitely a finals where it doesn't feel like either of these teams was sort of a fluke uh, finals entrant. I think I think it'll be a really good series, and I think they're you know a stat you're going to hear a lot. You're going to get so sick of it. <laughs> is that the Celtics are the only team uh, with a winning record against the Warriors since Steve Kerr? 
Kerr became coach. Um, so they are they they they're they're pretty well matched, um, and I think it'll be. Yeah, it could potentially be a really a really excellent series, um, particularly on the heels of what I think most people feel like were pretty lackluster conference final series. You know, the the Warriors made pretty easy hay of the Mavs and the Celtics series, even though it went to seven games, like was pretty brutal to watch a lot of the time. Like they're really, you know, as we talked about last week, there really just weren't uh, very many really good games in that series. I mean, game seven was probably the best game um, of that series that we got. Not to be annoying narrative guy, but uh, it's probably come up a few times, but I'm sure people are going to not make anything of the fact that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving left their respective teams to build something special. (laughs) And now uh, those teams are in the finals and they uh, got swept in the first round. But anyway, Jack, (laughs) thanks so much for joining us again. And good luck to your Celtics. Uh, And I say that as a Bay Area (laughs) resident. Uh, I hope hope they pull it off. (laughs) Thanks, guys. This was great. Uh, Thanks again for having me on. Up next, we'll have insiders Bradford William Davis on to talk about the White Sox's Tim Anderson and his dispute with the Yankees' Josh Donaldson. Three years ago, Sports Illustrated's Stephanie Epstein published a piece headlined, Tim Anderson is going to play the game his way. That story begins, Tim Anderson's baseball life is often a lonely one, even when he's on first base, usually the most social stop on the diamond. My conversation is limited over there, he says. It's like, what's up, dude? What's up, man? How you doing today? Because we don't have nothing in common. The piece goes on to note that Anderson was then one of only 72 black players in Major League Baseball, and that he felt out of place in the sport, like he belongs on the field, but not in the game. And then, a bit later in the story, after a mention of the work that Anderson does to help introduce inner-city Chicago kids to baseball, he said, I kind of feel like today's Jackie Robinson. That's huge to say, but it's cool, man, because he changed the game. And I feel like I'm getting to a point where I need to change the game. All right, fast forward to a little more than a week ago, another player, the Yankees' Josh Donaldson, threw that quote back in Anderson's face, calling him Jackie on the field. That comment led to Donaldson getting suspended for a game and the Yankees player, for some reason, apologizing to Jackie Robinson's widow. Joining us now is Bradford William Davis. He is an investigative reporter for Insider, and he wrote about Tim Anderson and Josh Donaldson for Defector last week. Uh, Welcome back to the show. Yo, thank you for having me again. Great to have you. And uh, I'm grateful to have you here to walk us through what happened here in a bit more detail. Um, And maybe explain what sort of interactions Donaldson and Anderson had had before this. And I guess there's a little bit of a difference of opinion between them on what the kind of nature of their relationship was. Yeah, difference of opinion isn't even half of it. (laughs) Uh, Tim Anderson almost directly refutes what Josh Donaldson said their relationship was. But, uh, to, to start with Donaldson's side of the story, apparently in 2019, after that Sports Illustrated profile, uh, Josh took deliberate, took it upon himself to begin calling, uh, Tim Anderson Jackie. Tim Anderson did not appreciate that in the moment, but Josh Donaldson said that they, that he laughed about it. And so he 
continue to do that during the 2022 season, which is right now. And Tim jawed back after hearing it a couple of times in the field during a, uh, a heated Yankees White Sox game. Benches cleared and, you know, they had their words. Uh, no one, no punches thrown, but they were definitely, uh, almost there. But as Tim calls it, he never appreciated that. He always felt that that was out of pocket for him to be calling him, uh, his, calling him Jackie because, uh, they're not friends like that, I guess. <laughs> uh, he said that, uh, something that, something defective. If you speak to me like that, we don't have to talk anymore. That's what Tim Anderson said. And, uh, and so from Tim's, from Tim's side, which is a side I happen to believe is, is the true side here, Josh had continued to needle him, continued to, to provoke him. And they had already had a, uh, they, they'd already had the, both teams had already had a scuffle in, uh, the week prior during a game, um, that they played. So he was, so there was already bad blood simmering when that happened and it exploded into what we saw the, the last week and a half. You know, brother, in the days since then, um, obviously there's been a lot of, you know, reaction, um, around the league, even at Yankee Stadium, the, you know, the day after this kind of blew up. Um, who do you think, I mean, cause you're talking about there's a difference of opinion. It, it, it goes beyond that. Like, this is a totally, you know, they don't, they don't even come from this from the same point. Who do you think story has resonated the most? within baseball, right? Like, I'm not asking you about outside of that, but within baseball, who do you think people believe or side with the most um, in this case here? It's a great question. It feels a little like a civil war. I can't say, like, one side is definitely over the other because, I mean, I only have my circle people and I try not to hang out with people who invoke uh, disease and goaded civil rights icons to mock me. So like, I, I just don't have a good sample size. But I will say that the, that a lot of the players that I've spoken to felt that Josh Allison uh, is a known instigator and has kind of a rep. And so there was a decent amount of frustration that he that he went there. However, many fans, if we're including like the baseball community include fans, were quite, you know, and particularly Yankees fans of that, were very sympathetic towards uh Josh Donaldson because they felt that he was just busting balls and that Tim brought it upon himself to get mocked by I guess you know again slain I mean not slain but uh deceased civil rights icon police uh and respecter Josh Donaldson for uh drawing a comparison between himself and his hero. So that is so they're really so there I think there really are two minds to that and then somewhere in the middle are people who maybe don't approve of what Josh Donaldson said, felt it was maybe unwise, but felt that he didn't mean anything by it. And that it was ultimately just him being a troll, but not doing something with a clear uh, racial animus underlying the trolling. Basically, we don't know the, the, char- the contents of his heart. Right. Real quick uh, to follow up here. So there's those three sides of this, right, of looking at it. And I'm just curious to know if you all are surprised that you know look Tony La Russa is Tim Anderson's manager of course right so I mean in some ways he has to ride for him but that he rode for him so hard I mean Tony La Russa is a guy who I mean was openly supported the Tea Party you know brought you know Albert Pujols to a Glenn Beck rally you know what I mean like this is not the guy that you would think 
would be lining up with Tim Anderson. And so to me, that sort of says a little something, doesn't it? Even like even if you just even if even if you just accept, okay, look, a manager kind of has to side with his players, but for him to come out so vocally and defend Tim uh, in this instance says a little something, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that that part is a little overplayed, to be perfectly honest, okay. because one, it is his manager, right. and so he had his back. And so that's not totally uncommon for mm-hmm. a manager to have his back, despite the perhaps different politics or values that Anderson and LaRussa may have. The other thing is that Tony LaRussa has allegedly been a strong supporter of, believe it or not, Bruce Maxwell, who uh, some may, may remember as a, uh, a a former catcher with the Oakland A's at a couple cups of coffee, kind of very marginal player, not Tim Anderson, totally different spectrum as far as uh, their skill and performance anyway in the field, but is someone who uh, kneeled during the anthem in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick back in 2017. So right, so right after Kaepernick, because it was essentially exiled out of out of football, um, and uh, and according to Bruce, like, and he's very vocal about this. Tony Larusa supported me, and which is again is interesting given that Tony Larusa was was critical of San Francisco Giants manager Game Kapler for uh, choosing to have it to stage a similar protest during uh, the anthem this year. But I think Tony is the kind of person. Uh, the kind of person who believes that everyone should be allowed to do what they want, even if I disagree with your methods and approach, kind of like, you know, I'll, I'll die for your right to do something <laughs> that pisses me off. You know, that, that kind of conservative, uh, sort of, uh, approach to things. Uh, they're, they're, the, 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 the GOP that we need in this country, <laughs> as some might say. So that's, that's kind of what I think, think Tony is coming from here. You know, I, I, you know, uh, whether you want to call him a, uh, hashtag ally, uh, in the fight, uh, is, you know, I think, a Another subject I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to debate here, but I do think that he um, does believe in the right for people to express themselves. I mean, Tony LaRussa is, though, like a big play the game the right way guy. And I do seem to recall that he's like criticized guys on his own team for quote unquote not playing the game the right way. But this is like intersects like so many different kind of baseball third rails Um because, you know, Bradford, Tim Anderson has been a guy who the league has celebrated in ad campaigns for um, being somebody who brings excitement to the game, who celebrates, who, you know, tosses, flips his bat and, and, and stuff. But there is, like we've been saying, the strong undercurrent and not always an undercurrent of people in and around the game who don't support um, behavior like that prominently to most prominently Tony Larissa. Um, and sort of, you know, I think it's important for people that don't follow the sport to know this context. Tim Anderson is an amazing, amazing player. Like one of the best players in the game was hitting in the three fifties, right? Before he got hurt recently. Um, and is just a superstar in the game. And so, um, sort of like somebody like Bryce Harper, right? Like somebody who both is a great player, but also is like, you know, likes to celebrate his own greatness as, as so many of us like to do. So how much of this is about kind of Tim Anderson and the way that he's received um, in the game versus, um, you know, how this would play out with any other player? I think that 
with Tim, he is, yes, he's definitely very celebrated, but baseball does have this culture that he is rubbing against, which is the whole angle of that Sports Illustrated profile from three years ago. And he's a lightning rod because of that, because he is so uh, aggressively being himself. And he is a bombastic, boisterous person who loves to have fun and, ce- and celebrate his wins uh, whenever they come. And, uh, and so it's, there's an importance to getting this right. I think, um, I'm not sure exactly how the league sees this, but, you know, but I think certainly many fans would see this as, you know, certainly, you know, some of the players that I've spoken to as well. Like there is a importance in getting it right that you don't have too many Tim Andersons. Frankly, you have more Bryce Harpers than you have Tim Andersons, even though Bryce Harper is, uh, more celebratory than the generation before him. Uh, because, you know, because he's, he's so talented and so charismatic, uh, and, and a, proudly black American uh, man in this game. So it calls into, into, I guess, into question the the suspension being so short, in my opinion, given that people have instigated a lot less and gotten more, more games in the past. Um, I want to say like Amir Garrett got like a few games for just kind of looking at a guy <laughs> the wrong way <laughs> that, that caused a ruckus. And granted, Amir Garrett is a repeat offender. Right, uh, Amir Garrett being a, a, a relief pitcher in the Cincinnati. I want to say the Cincinnati Reds now, or no, the Royals. Excuse me, but um, but so is Josh Allenson. Josh Allenson has been at this for a decade. He's he's been he's he's always that guy. Uh, it is a it's part of what makes him great in some ways because he because he also plays with supreme confidence and celebrates his wins. But he um, but you know, but it is uh, but it's a big reason why a lot of people don't like him, like Tim Anderson. <laughs> you know, I, I do think the baseball of it all this person really and Tim being so different from the culture that was handed to him is a big reason why this is drawing the attention that it has. So stepping back for a second, what do you all think resonates the most here? Is it Tim Anderson and his um, celebration of himself in the game, right? That like Tim Anderson is a guy who's one of the best players in the league, um, makes no bones about it and celebrates himself at every opportunity, which is great. Like, that's awesome. And that that's drawn him some attention to himself. Or is it that he's refers to himself as basically being alone out there? And, you know, the fact that Josh Donaldson's or whatever out there to antagonize him. Um, and he seems sort of lonely in this, this journey, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I guess I was trying to figure like, as this happened, like, if you're a young black baseball player, like let's say you're 11 years old and you're trying to make a decision about what sport do I really want to play? I'm just like, what, which of these two things do you think would resonate the most? Is it Tim Anderson's greatness or the way that it is regarded and the way that it's treated, um, you know, over the past few years? I certainly hope it's Tim because he, I think, responded in a perfect way. And then the next day, he hit a massive three-run home run to secure a doubleheader sweep against the Yankees in Yankee Stadium. And that entire day, fans were chanting Jackie at him. So they made the subtext into text <laughs> by making it into a slur as, <laughs> as, uh, as he played. But he hit a three-run home run. He, uh, I believe he, he yelled out, like, shut the F up. <laughs> and uh, might have put, like, his hand to his ears, you know. <laughs> And, uh, and then just, uh, did his, did his trot as, as he secured a big win for his team. I think that his ability to overcome is 
hopefully a symbolic sign for a lot of young young kids but that is but the symbol is one thing the actual day-to-day reality of being an a, an 11 year old on a travel team Yo. uh out of your neighborhood where, where you're no longer with other you know with your 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 family with but you know if you live in a black neighborhood your 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 community and stuck with a bunch of Tylers and Trevors and Joshes Breath, who, that shit doesn't uh, that shit doesn't look fun at all right like that yeah. that sounds like nobody wants to be you want to be Tim Anderson but you don't want to live Tim Anderson's life if you're a professional athlete right right it's like so how long do you want to hold on to that how, you want yeah. to spend the next 12 12 years and many of it perhaps in the minor leagues making you know uh below poverty rate wages all to to have people you know turn Again, civil rights icons into slurs mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just because you want to improve the game. And I think that's a really important point that, that that is, I think, lost in all this, is that Tim Anderson is actually a pretty fabulous um, carrier of Jackie Robinson's legacy. Like he <laughs> uh, he he is in, uh, very involved in his, you know, in the communities that he's a part of. He's a great baseball player. And um, and he's making it fun in a way that that gives you a lot, I think, a lot more comfort to be themselves. And we've seen that. We've seen way more bad flips in the uh, post-Tim Anderson's breakout era. It's not only Tim Anderson doing that, but I think he's a big part of that. So he is changing the culture slowly within the sport. You know, it, it doesn't mean he is breaking the color barrier. I think having like a modicum of charity when interpreting his words would say that he yeah, that he is not placing himself as an equivalent <laughs> to Jackie Robinson, but just that he's, he's trying to, to honor his legacy by making it a little bit easier for for a generation behind him to feel welcome and supported in this game. That's it. Yeah, and so in the Sports Illustrated piece, he um, made an argument that black kids should go into baseball, like despite everything that had been going on with him. He said, you know, football's dangerous. Bas- this is actually Stephanie Epstein's words. Football's dangerous. Uh, basketball's for physical freaks, but an otherwise unremarkable child can dedicate himself to baseball and give himself a shot at college. Like that's, that's the argument. And there are a lot of really great young black players in the majors and also, um, you know, in, in high school and college right, right now, it's not like, um, there's a, a total, uh, dearth. And I think a lot of that can be credited to Anderson and players like him. Um, but the thing that I find, um, really kind of amazing about him is the guy who says that that Jackie Robinson quote is somebody who is not ashamed or hiding. He's proud. He's a smart guy and kind of understands, I think, how people are going to read that and think about it and, and interpret it. And he's willing to own it. He was willing to own it in 2019 and understands kind of his importance in the game. Um, and I mean, there was also an incident in Bradford that happened just before that Sports Illustrated piece came out where he flipped his bat, a white pitcher threw at him and could have seriously hurt him. And Anderson shouted the N-word at the, at the pitcher and got suspended for a game, the same amount that Josh Donaldson got suspended for. And then when Stephanie Epstein asked him about what he said, he said, yeah, I said, exactly what I said. And he wasn't running away from it. He wasn't shying away from it. This is not, again, a guy who's like afraid uh, to say what he thinks, um, to own what he said. And he's not, I, I think he probably wishes he wasn't controversial, but it doesn't seem like he's going to, you know, mince his words or anything like that. Yeah. He's, uh, he certainly se- seems to be very comfortable in the skin. I, 
I unfortunately have never had a chance to have a, a actually have a conversation with him for more longer than like eight seconds. Um, but I do hope to because I would love to to hear a little bit of of why he has been able to I guess mentally prepare himself uh, for the things that he that he deals with without flinching in any sort of discernible way. Not to say that there is there aren't probably time things that he, he may not say that he would say if he stuck stuck with uh, basketball instead of baseball as he, I think, wanted to for a long time in high school. But he's a, a, a got a very special mindset, and that's great. But back to what Joel was saying, you shouldn't have to have a super special Brazilian mindset <laughs> to deal with things. You should, be, it, it should be, you should be okay with being like, you know, with your feelings hurt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, with, with, you should, you know, what I mean to say is you shouldn't, you shouldn't need to have such tough skin to make it as far as you do in, in organized American baseball. And that's a problem. Hopefully Tim Anderson can make things better again for a generation coming after him. But that is, but the, but the key issue is that you need to be so unique and so special, uh, not just with your bat speed or your range is short or, or your arm or something like that, but also in your head. That's, that is what I certainly hope changes through, uh, Anderson continuing to be himself, but probably like 20 other structural things that we don't have the time to deal with as well. All right, Bradford, you're going to s- stick around and we're going to talk about another uh, dispute in baseball that led to its suspension, a more lighthearted topic. We'll get to that in a minute. this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and how the sports world has responded, including Steve Kerr's comments at a press conference and Gabe Kapler's decision to stop coming out for the national anthem. If you want to hear that discussion, you need to be a Slate Plus member. And if you're a member, you don't just get bonus segments on this show and other Slate shows. You can listen to this podcast and other Slate podcasts without any ads, and you can get the pleasure of knowing you are supporting this show, which would not be possible without the support of Slate Plus members. So sign up. Go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. So here is a set of events that actually happened. Before Friday's game between Cincinnati and San Francisco, the Reds' Tommy Pham approached the Giants' Jock Peterson in the outfield and slapped him across the face, an act that led to Pham getting suspended for three games, for comparing suspension lengths here. Pham explained the next day that Peterson had, quote, said some shit I don't condone. Meanwhile, in the other locker room, Peterson was telling his side of the story. Let's listen. I put somebody, a player, on the injured reserve when they were listed as out and um, added another player. Uh, And then um, uh, there was a text message in the group saying that I was cheating uh, because I was stashing players on my bench. 
So let's stop that. Um, th- this goes on for a lot longer, but this exchange confirms a fact that I'd already suspected, but now know with absolute certainty that even the most interesting fantasy sports argument in history is just incredibly boring in its substance. But it does get better because Fam, who was on the San Diego Padres last year, he wasn't just upset that Peterson was doing something or other with his fantasy football roster. He was also mad about what was going on in the group chat. And thankfully, Jack Peterson walked us through that part, too. It is true. I did send a, uh, a GIF making fun of the Padres. And uh, if I hurt anyone's feelings, I apologize for that. Joel, uh, there's some more backstory here that we can get into in a minute, but I just wanted to get to you as quickly as possible because I feel like you're maybe more equipped than anyone on earth to analyze what happened here. Is that is that you think I'm some sort of slapping expert, or is it is it because is it because is it because Jock's from Palo Alto, or because I've seen group you, chats devolve into violence before? Or what what is you that? love you love analyzing dumb fights. Yes, and this is true. Uh, you like to you know. Say say things and uh, you know maybe maybe tease people a little bit. Maybe a little like, Cindy, yeah, okay. Maybe yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I'm a little teaser. That's that's fair. I'll take that. I'll take that. Well, I mean, so I think the thing that was funny to me is that if you didn't know the players or their names and just laid out the facts of the case anonymously, right? You'd think it was like this dust up between a pair of twenty somethings who were out of the out of triple A ball. Uh, like it's just you know the gifts, the the fantasy football, the group, group chat, all of it. Just some real Gen, Gen Z shit. And then I just realized <laughs> that the people involved here were like thirty four and thirty years old. Yeah, <laughs> these are, these are these are grown ass men. You know, <laughs> yeah. and it but it makes sense in the context of baseball. And Bradford, I'm sorry if this you know I know you cover baseball and you said you're not a baseball player, but it makes sense in the context of baseball to me because they're the players tend to be more juvenile than other professional athletes on the average. Is that fair? Is that a fair characterization of baseball players? That they're more juvenile than like your typical NFL or NBA player, right? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like helmet syndrome does something to football players. Like, <laughs> okay. I'm just kind of like needing to be seen <laughs> in a way that is, that might be a little different, but, sure. uh, but you know, but again, I'm not the I'm not the football player. I'm not the the, the 12 year old track star. I I, I don't know. No, I just. I think the thing that's the funniest thing about all this is just that t- Tommy Pham is no longer on the team that was being made fun of, and he's right. still held it in for so long. There's <laughs> no the way he gives he a no- shit about the Padres, right? Like, I'm, no way, right? <laughs> <laughs> but there's evidence. It's five fingers of evidence. <laughs> Five fingerprints <laughs> that would attest to something that as the two, the fact that he does care deeply about how others perceive the 2021 Padres. I didn't know that there had been anyone in, in the entire history of humanity that had cared about the Padres being insulted. So I guess we, <laughs> we, we learned something. Josh, you may be right. <laughs> Maybe entirely right. Hey, man, I grew up with two kids in my neighborhood, uh, Joey and Audrey. And if you all happen to be listening to this, strangely <laughs> enough, from the 80s, they moved into my neighborhood. They were the only two Padres fans I ever knew. That, and they lived in Missouri City, Texas in the late 80s. So uh, they did care. Maybe they would uh, have some feelings on that. But I, just real quick, uh, let me not pretend that I have a problem with slapping someone over perceived disrespect. Generally, that's something that I, I absolutely understand. And I even respect uh, in certain contexts, but I mean, bro, I mean, Tommy seems like a hothead. Like to me, it's just like you were looking for a reason to slap that dude, right? Like I just like that's that's bottom line. Like I just think that 
you didn't like that guy. You probably like been watching that group chat, you know, go down. You just like, I just don't fuck with that dude. And you were looking for any opportunity to slap that guy. And when it arose, you took it. That's what I think. I think some important context to Tommy Fam is that he plays with like eight chips on his shoulders. <laughs> that is that is why he's had a, a good long career, really. There was actually a Sports Illustrated article about that from like 2017 when he had a breakout year with the San Luis Cardinals. But in the previous two seasons, he was a good player, yet he was like constantly being shuttled between the major and minor leagues. And he's like really mad. Like, I'm clearly one of, you know, the better players on this team. And I was before, even my breakout season. Why am I still in the minors? He is driven by that sort of, uh, anger and desire for, for, um, vengeance <laughs> against all, against all enemies, real or perceived. And, uh, you know, again, I, I hate that I'm essentially describing an angry black man trope, but this is, this is one of those times where, you know, you should not systemically broadly, you know, uh, put all, all, all black males no. into this, but the shoe fits. He's no. angry and he, and he, and, and he uses it to be good. And so I think that is kind of what, ha- what happens that when you, when you have that, when that, that's what drives you is what makes you a millionaire, makes you a, a star baseball player. Uh, it's hard to turn it off. <laughs> it don't matter anymore. And I think that's exactly what happened when he had the, uh, when he had to do the, uh, when the fantasy football beef, uh, sparked is that, you know, he's, he, he it, it was, it's the equivalent of the guy at the bar, you know, waiting for someone to look at him, to glance at his eyes in the wrong way and be like, Oh, you talking to me? You talking to my girl? You know, all right. Well, let's, let's step outside. He, he wants that fight because it's what makes him a good player. Don't we feel like, I- Oh, everything that you guys said is uh, is true. But don't we feel like this is just like about money? That he's just mad, and he even he even says it explicitly. You're fucking with my money. <laughs> oh wait, there's actually more. You're fucking with my money. Then you're gonna say some disrespectful shit. There's a code to this. I did not realize <laughs> that there's a code with Padres gifts. Um, but I I think what happened here is let's let's throw some money let's let's throw some dollar figures out here, Joel. Like, how much money do you think would have had to be involved for Jack Peterson to get slapped like that? Are we talking about, like, Tommy Pham feels like he cost him? Oh. I mean, these guys make a lot of money, actually, because they're professional athletes. You think it's, like, five figures? Six yeah, figures? I, I, I was starting here. I was saying $10,000 is probably where you start. 10000 was the number that was in my head, head, too. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did you have an imaginary dollar figure in your head, Bradford? Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if it's like even six. I mean, like these guys have a lot of money. Yo, they have so much money, man. Like, and Tommy fans do like he like you know he actually was uh, stabbed in front of a strip club. Fortunately, you know recovered well. But like you know, um, not Wait, too what? long ago. Really? Yeah, yeah, it happened. Oh, I, I don't think I knew that. Which city? Yep. Which city did he get stabbed? I just need to know. <laughs> we'll do some research on that. We'll do some while research we're on talking, that. Okay, we'll right. Oh, it was in San Diego. It was yeah, in San, San Diego. Diego. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, cool. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, he, you know, he's, he's, he's made, he's made his money, you know, like he's, um, you know, he's a multimillionaire, um, and as his jock, I, I would have to think it has, it has to cross six figures because for money to be the true issue here, uh, and not like respect, I think respect is sort of it, you know, I, I think even, even when it comes to the IL stuff, like the, or, or the, you know, the fantasy roster issues is like, like, this is a disrespectful way to conduct your fantasy football team. And I have a problem with it. And then on top of that, <laughs> you made fun of the team that I no longer play for, <laughs> but was a part of. Uh, how dare you? And so I, I really think it's, yeah, it, it's spite. Um, and honestly, I, I do respect that. And like, cause frankly, I, I, 
I write best when I'm angry. <laughs> so, um, when I'm at, like, I wish I wish I could concentrate better on on words when I uh, when I'm in like a good state of mind, but I'm not. So here are a couple of things that Tommy Pham has said in the past few years, and about this incident, he said, "I'm a big dog in Vegas. I'm a high roller at many casinos," which is like. I thought that that was like something that Ron Burgundy said in Anchorman. No, uh, but but you know and what? He is from he is from Vegas. He's, he's from he's Vegas. Vegas. I was like, so that that actually is. I, I thought that was bullshit, but I was like, oh, that actually could be true. That's probably true, right? <laughs> All right, and here's after the the strip club uh, stabbing incident. Um, <laughs> there were hecklers, and uh, Fam said in response to that to fans heckling him about him self getting stabbed. He said. When someone comes up to me cursing at me like that, I could defend myself. And, you know, I'm a very good fighter. I don't do Muay Thai, Kung Fu, and box for no reason. I love this guy. And that's what I'm saying. It's, like, it's not about money. Because the man's probably blowing 10 times his fantasy football earnings <laughs> at the strip club. Off oh, wait. Oh, wait. There's another, there's another quote. There's like, another quote. So, so earlier, this like a month ago, there was an <laughs> oh. issue with a slide at home plate that Tommy Pham didn't, didn't appreciate. And he, uh, he offered to fight a former teammate of his, Luke Voigt, and said, if Luke wants to settle it, I get down really well. Anything, <laughs> Muay Thai, whatever. I've got a gym owner here who will let me use his facility. So fuck him. Wow. I mean, Joel, this is like your favorite player wow. ever. Wow. It's a podcast. You can't see who Luke Voigt is. Friends, Google Luke Voigt. That man is strong. <laughs> that man, like, sir, no, like when he was in the Yankees, like, I would ask him for like workout tips. <laughs> like, and you tell me about like eating asparagus because oh, like a bodybuilder friend of his knows like it, it produces, you know, muscle growth better than many vegetables. Like, he is, like, there, there are videos of him lifting uh, a bench with plates on uh, a, a barbell. With uh, plates on both sides, with just one hand, like that's that's a kind of like wow. meathead, you know, driven to the grind of gains that Luke Voigt is. He's a big guy, and so for Tommy Fan to do that, that, like that, that says an, a lot, a lot about Tommy Fan that he yeah. wants to like fight again, not only his presumable friend, even you know, from from a previous team, but also like you know, the biggest guy, one of the biggest guys on the field anytime. Do you know who Tommy Pham is? I'm just, this is just kind of occurring to me and see if this analogy is. He's Pac-Man Jones. Is this not Pac-Man Jones? Tommy Pham is Pac-Man Jones. <laughs> uh, that like, we know that he can fight. He's, I mean, had, you know, strip, he's open to fighting at a strip club, fi- open to fighting pretty much anywhere. And it's like, you don't want to be associated with that dude. Like, you do not want to have to go out with that person. You don't want to have any real sort of interaction with them because you're just what you, you know, you don't know what wire you're going to trip. But at a distance, he seems like a fun motherfucker, man. Like, he just, he, <laughs> like, I just, I like that vibe. Like, I feel like all professional sports need players like this. As long as, you know, as long as they keep it in between the lines. And, and did you, you all did see the slap, right? Um, itself. Oh, we There's like it. a blurry photo, right? Of it, yeah, like blurry. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean that that in and of itself. And I know that slapping is like you know some great crime in America uh, up until you know, uh, <laughs> you know up until a couple couple months ago. But I just I kind of dig that dude's vibe. I think all professional sports need a guy like this. You know, it, 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 assuming they can survive their off field fights. Um, but um, and, and then baseball would much rather talk about this. Than Josh Donaldson, they'd much rather talk about this than you know the Anaheim uh, scandal that's going on, where you know 
corruption and everything was used to to set aside land for the angels, right? So, like, I mean, if I'm baseball, like, three games, whatever, that's fine. I mean, he deserved the suspension or whatever, but, like, that's that's the kind of story you want to have out there, I think. Well, this story is just such an amazing boon to the Joel Anderson agenda, which is (laughs) that, that agenda being, as a society, we should not pretend to care about things like this or to, like, take them like super seriously and like just this story um with the the fantasy football and the group chat leading to a a slap i i think all of america is behind you on this one joel (laughs) that we we shouldn't uh try to argue that this is problematic um but i should all i will add and and this is getting back to something that bradford said earlier i mean with tommy fam like this is a guy he like had to wear leg braces when he was an infant. He overcame like an eye issue to play in the, uh, the majors. Um, he has, you know, his, his, when he grew up, his dad was in prison. Like he has a, a really amazing story. And the fact that he was able to make it to the majors is really cool. But this is like a guy with all of the stuff around him, like this might be funny, it does feel like there could be like something that happens with him in the future that's like less funny. Um, and I feel kind of like, I don't know if I, if I feel bad for the guy is the right term, but like, you know, there's a, there's a, I guess a fine line between like playing with a chip on your shoulder and like, uh, you know, the, the humor of being mad at somebody about some dumb fantasy shit and like, having some like self-control self-control issues and i'm just like worried about what's gonna what's gonna happen with this guy in the future no no i mean i think that's fair right yeah i mean you don't want it to spill like if you can't control your anger you can't control your anger uh and that can lead you down some really dark places eventually right (laughs) yeah I, i i hope that uh he's able to just better drive it towards competitive fire uh and and only competitive fire like, I don't want to proclaim that he's going to be like in jail when he's 50 or something like that at all. Like, like, you know, there's plenty of time to work, to, to, to work out, uh, your, your hangups in a way that, that you drive it towards the things that matter and, uh, step away from things that don't. It's hard, but like, it's possible. And, uh, I, I'm, but I, yeah, right now I'm grateful that it is a purely funny story at this point. Like, think about Slapgate one, you know, and, uh, the many referendums that were made about <laughs> black on black crime or something of that to, to that nature. Like, I'm glad this is not that. I'm glad that this is, you know, as harmless and PG as violence can be, like, right. in, you know, the country. So, and, and, and let's not overlook Jock Peterson here, by the way. He seems like an extremely cool guy. Like, he took, I don't know what he knows about Tommy, or maybe he knows all the same things we know about Tommy, which is why he took that slap, you know fairly graciously like he was like i guess i earned that um but like he just seems like a really cool guy i'm so happy that he was willing to open up his phone and group chat to the rest of us um that was so generous of him yeah i mean that's the (laughs) that's the last point i would make is that like bradford is somebody who goes into locker rooms like i mean isn't this the best case and demonstration of why it's so important like in this era where like they're trying to restrict journalistic access to players and locker rooms and it's like everything on Zoom, just like it just brought so much joy to me to see like this gaggle of reporters around Jack Peterson and he's like showing his phone and like answering everyone's question. I mean, America needed this and like (laughs) this is just 
you know, Bradford, you should be in, be able to go in any locker room, uh, that you, that you want and need to go to because America, America needs these moments with how Adam Silver is listening. <laughs> like, look at this. Look, look at what you miss. You're, you, you are, you're in the, uh, conference final, well, now the finals and your sport is the sort of cultural touch point in this country. And you lost the entire weekend to a fantasy football scrap in Major League Baseball <laughs> because media had access <laughs> to the player. Let us in. Let us in, Adam. And this is the, another a testament, Joel, to the popularity of football. The, like, when does baseball make it in the news because of fantasy oh, right. football? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, you know what? I've never played fantasy football in my life, but if it gets people – well, actually, you know what? This – this makes even more of a case for why I've never done it because I don't want to get that emotional about anything. You know what I mean? That's like, I had enough going on in life without it escalating to something like that. Um, but yeah, no, football, still keen of one. Oh, speaking of football, by the way, you know, I did not know much about Jock Peterson and I had to, so I had to look this up. Uh, he's a local product right out here, Pally, a Pally Viking. Did, this factoid on his Wikipedia fucking blew my mind. Did, did you know what I'm going to read to you all? Peterson, oh, I do. I do. Peterson was the team's number one wide receiver, racking up more yards and touchdowns than his teammate, future NFL wide receiver Devontae Adams. I was like, what? Jock Peterson, what? <laughs> Dog, I like that guy too, man. So shout out Jock Peterson, who I, who was running. You love both. Young. You love both of these guys. This fight really raised both of them. Uh, and esteem in your eyes. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're firmly in my top five favorite baseball players already. So uh, thanks for this. <laughs> ninth, ninth in career home runs among Jews, baby. Let's go. Really? Um, what <laughs> <laughs> a mensch. We all got something to root for here. Great. <laughs> uh, Bradford, William Davis writes for Insider. He investigates stuff for Insider. We talked about his great piece about uh, the baseball uh, not that long ago. And he wrote about uh, the other incident. That we talked about the Tim Anderson, Josh Donaldson one for Defector. Bradford, thank you so much for spending time with us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And now it is time for After Balls. And Joel, I don't know if you knew, but while you were gone, we got a sponsor, Bennett's Prune Juice. Really? Endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says, it was okay. Bennett's Prune Juice. Um, Ooh, prune Juice is good. <laughs> I mean, my dad raised me on Prune Juice. That's fine, sorry. Oh, man. Uh, hang up and listen to After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice. Endorsed by Joel <laughs> Anderson, who says, my dad raised me on Prune Juice. Um, so, Joel... Uh, just because I find fantasy sports disputes desperately boring, even when they lead to slapping. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't mention the player who is the kind of the eye of the storm. So the issue was that Jock Peterson put a guy on his injured list, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But the player was Jeff Wilson. Yeah. Kind of a Jeff Wilson. generic ass name, Jeff Wilson. Uh, but he is a running back. So again, another reason why the story is just like right. Um, in, the, in the center of the Venn diagram of your interests. And not only that, he played college football at North Texas. Really? 
I did not know that. I, for some reason, I thought this guy was from Florida, but okay, huh? Oh wait, here we go. High school football at Elkhart High School in Texas. Ooh, okay. I want to say Elkhart's in East Texas, but I may have that wrong. You all, all looking you know up here? Elkhart, Texas, southwestern Anderson County. Have you heard of it? Oh yeah, that's in East Texas. Also, he was born in Palestine, Texas. You know who else is a great running back? Was born in Palestine, Texas, right? Ooh, I should know that. Adrian Peterson. That's right. Adrian mm-hmm. Peterson. I knew it was mm-hmm. sound familiar. Um, so, Joel, since I'm doing the after ball today, mm. is there anything you'd like to ask me? Anything I'd like to ask you? What? Yeah. You know how we do this? Remember how we do this? Oh, yeah, right. Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've been off for so long. Uh, oh, we're okay, leaving okay. all this in, but go ahead. Yeah, okay, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, God. I won't even get to do a retake. Okay. So, Josh, who is your Jeff Wilson for today? Uh, so... Joel, there's a phrase that's been a part of our lives, I I think, ever since both of us have been uh, sentient sports watchers. So basically, like, since early to mid-80s, it's a phrase that evokes the natural cycles of of fandom and team building, of highs and lows, of success and failure, of reaping and sowing, if we want to get biblical about it. And that phrase is rebuilding year. Mm. Since I happened uh, to mention 1980s, I'm going to pick 1985 here just as an example. Let's start off with a survey of teams that, according to LexisNexis, were going through rebuilding years in 1985. You got the Villanova basketball team coming off a national championship earlier that Hmm. year. The Clemson football team coming off probation under coach Danny Ford. The entire uh, sport of American figure skating, which had slim hopes for medals at the world championships. All sorts Mm. of high school teams that were suffering losses from graduation. And also the company WaveTech, which did tests and measurement instrumentation and was having, quote, unanticipated difficulties in growth. So it's clear from that list that the concept was and is far-reaching. It's not specific to any sport or to team sports or even to sports at all. Trying to figure out the origins of the term rebuilding year, it's a little difficult given the prevalence of non-metaphorical usages of the term, like people rebuilding their houses a year after a fire. Mm. But I did learn from newspapers.com that in 1915, the Cornell football team was rebuilding next year. Nine years later, a headline said the Yale football coach must do plenty of rebuilding this year. Mm. And while I'm guessing there were earlier references that I missed, the first quote, rebuilding year I could find with no words in between the rebuilding and the year was in Pittsburgh Press in 1928, noting that a victory uh, in the Duquesne football team's final game would make the team's record read pretty well for the rebuilding year. We've talked a lot about Duquesne football on this podcast, by the way. Do <laughs> They're you definitely punching above their the weight. Dukes, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The rebuilding year will clearly be with us forever, conceptually. The Chicago Cubs, they're using their rebuilding year to see if Nico Horner is a long-term answer at shortstop, says The Athletic. New York State's Galway High School won the Section 2 Class C Baseball Championship in what their coach said was thought to be kind of a rebuilding year. So way to go, Golden Eagles. (laughs) And yet, Joel, why all of this wind up and build up, you might be asking. I feel Mm. like the concept of the rebuilding year is all but dead. In two of the sports that the two of us hold particularly dear, those sports being college football and mm. college basketball. In those sports and others, players are now allowed to transfer once without having to set out a season. That's the new NCAA rule. The rise of what's effectively college sports free agency has changed those games in all kinds of ways. But for our purposes, let's consider the Iowa State basketball program. 
In 2021, the Cyclones finished 2-22 and and 0-18 and in Big 12 play. That would be uh, a team that you'd think would need maybe a rebuilding decade, not just a rebuilding <laughs> year. But coach TJ Otzelberger rebuilt the team through the transfer portal, brought in seven transfers, um, and that new core beat LSU in the NCAA tournament, and they went uh, all the way to the Sweet 16. And how about that LSU basketball program? They fired Will Wade for allegedly breaking all kinds of NCAA rules. Um, and after that happened, every single player on the 2021-2022 uh, roster put his name in the transfer portal. Wow. New coach Matt McMahon did convince three of them ultimately to stay. He brought in another group of players from his old team, Murray State, and he got some transfers, some incoming freshmen, um, and has actually cobbled together what looks like is going to be a competitive roster in the SEC. Now, it's obviously easier to turn over a relatively smaller basketball roster than a football one, but also look at what USC's Lincoln Riley and LSU's mm. Brian Kelly have done in the last few months, bringing in tons of new transfers in very short time frames. And so that's what brings me to my conclusion, Joel, that at least on the high major programs, losing players to graduation, losing them to the draft, it's no longer going to be an acceptable excuse for a down year or, heaven forbid, a losing record. Um, which is perhaps one of the many reasons why a lot of coaches don't like the transfer portal. Those natural cycles of highs and lows, of success and failure, of reaping and sowing, really of excuses, even reasonable excuses, those excuses no longer exist. And so that other cliche, we don't rebuild, we reload, that has now become an imperative. And that's why I'm expecting a playoff berth from TCU every year oh, from okay. now until now until the end of time. But do you do you agree with my take that rebuilding year, there's no such thing anymore? I think it won't be a thing if you want to get rid of your coach, right? You know what I mean? Like if it's right. just like, ah, you know, you know, there's no excuse. There's no excuse, uh, Brian Kelly. Uh, you know, I, I know you lost a lot of players, but, you know, you're able to rebuild your team. It's not a big deal. So, yeah, I, I, I agree in theory, but it'll always... The coach that wants to buy himself more time will say that there's a rebuilding year. And for fans that are dissatisfied with their coaches, like, what are you talking about? There's no such thing as a rebuilding year. Um, and to your point about TCU, I mean, I've just got so little faith rebuilding in year? that. Uh, yeah. I mean, just whatever, man. We got, to, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to get uh, agitated talking about them, but, uh, I'm, you know, rebuilding. Uh, this is a rebuilding administration, put it that way. I but I mean, I like, think about Baylor basketball, for instance. Like, you, mm. Scott Drew came in after that program yeah. just got absolutely destroyed for good reason. And it's just like a slow building process. And then after many, many years, they won a national title. Like, the, this TJ Altsoburger thing, it's not like, I, I mean, Iowa State had some good years under Fred Hoiberg. And actually, we should mention Myron Medcalf, friend of the show, wrote a yeah. good piece about how Fred Hoiberg was like that was the first actual transfer program that they like built themselves on transfers kind of starting a, a decade ago but like uh the the fact that he turned that team from 2 and 22 to the sweet 16 in one year like if 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 we're talking about like even a program as like decimated as Baylor was like now conceivably they could have won the national title the next season yeah. no sure i the thing is though i just think that all of that is going to be a little overblown because Good players don't tend to leave like that. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't, I, I, I think you will be able to rebuild. You'll be able to pick a player from Murray State and get somebody from Kent State and bring in somebody from Colorado State. I'm just naming a bunch of states. But, um, but at the end of the day, like, I mean, I, I think uh, it'll be a lot of, 
much ado about nothing at the end of the day because the good schools are still going to be the good schools and they're going to have good players already. And maybe you'll be like Alabama where they'll pull Tennessee's best linebacker, Henry Toto. I think I think that's his name. Uh, you know, they just able to manage to get Tennessee's best player just to add on, just a little sprinkling. I agree with your theory in theory. That's all I can ask for, Joel. Thank you. Mm. Uh, that is our show, show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson, who we're just thrilled to have back, mm, I mm, am mm. Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Baby, and thanks for listening. Now it is time for our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. And last week, the shooting at uh, elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, dominated um, the news, dominated all of our thoughts, uh, I think, Joel, it's fair to say. And it um, dominated discourse in sports. Um, The day that the shooting happened was a scheduled day for the Western Conference Finals, um, and Steve Kerr came to the podium uh, before the game between uh, the Warriors and Mavericks and did not want to talk about the game. Uh, Let's listen. Um, I'm not going to talk about basketball. Nothing's uh, happened with our team in the last six hours. We're going to start the same way tonight. Um, Any basketball questions uh, don't matter. since we left shoot-around, 14 children were killed 400 miles from here, and a, and a teacher. And in the last 10 days, we've had elderly black people killed in a supermarket in Buffalo. We've had Asian churchgoers killed in Southern California, and now we have children murdered at school. When are we going to do something? Joel, we've heard Steve Kerr before comment on social issues and on politics. Um, And so it's not surprising that he said something, but um, the force that he spoke with, and then later on in the press conference, he particularly put it on the Senate. Um, The just kind of the, the level of outrage is what a lot of people were feeling. But I saw a bunch of people comment that, um, people within sports seem to be speaking their minds, both kind of maybe being more outspoken than on on previous issues, but also being more outspoken than even people in politics. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, in the way that Sandy Hook was supposed to have been a turning point in the discourse around um, uh, gun rights and mass shootings that maybe this might actually be that turning point. It does seem that there's a lot more energy and anger um, in the wake of this and understandably so. Um, and it's, it, I mean, I, I did think it was interesting, sort of, that it happened, you know, Gabe Kapler, the um, San Francisco Giants manager who um, said that he was going to not stand for the national anthem during games 
um, and, and changed course over the weekend uh, for, for Memorial Day, but is planning to sit out because he doesn't like the direction of the country. And um, I think that, you know, I don't think it's a surprise that the coaches who generate the most attention and publicity for their remarks about this are from the Bay Area. Um, which is theoretically more progressive politically than many other places in this country. And so there's a sense that the people out here um, would be able to take those remarks. Um, I mean, you know, that, that, that there's some uh, a feeling here that, yo, like what the hell is going on in Texas is crazy. Um, I don't think you'd, if, if Steve Kerr was coaching the Dallas Mavericks, I don't think, I don't think he would say that, but maybe I'm wrong. Cause I know Greg Popovich, um, maybe, I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen if Greg Popovich has said anything yet. Um, but he's not playing right now. But um, maybe he might be the one guy in Texas that might be able to get away with that. But yeah, man, I just I think that people are, you know, they look at what happened um, and they see like just this failure in society. And like we're right now, we're just seeing a breakdown of all these institutions around us. And then for that to happen, it's just like, well, man, we need to get our shit together. Um, and I'm, 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 it's good to see Steve Kerr and Gabe Kapler step up. But I also am like, where's everybody else? Because you said that, you know, that more people are speaking out about this. But I, to be honest, I'm kind of surprised I haven't seen more of it, right? Yeah, I mean, another thing that happened was the Yankees, like, spent a whole game with their social media account just tweeting, like, facts about guns and, and gun control. Which, on the one hand, it's just, like, a great example of... uh social media activism. Like, I'm not <laughs> sure what um, the the upshot of that is, but um, it, it does say something that the entire, that the organization, um, it, it, it wasn't just that they were tweeting facts about gun control. It was that they were doing it in lieu of doing whatever else they would do during the game and like pissing off a bunch of fans and, um, you know, drawing ire because of that. And so it's like, I'm not going to, you know, nominate them for the Nobel Peace Prize or anything. Um, but it was an example of an organization um, putting itself behind this issue. And I, I guess, you know, there there are two kind of categories of, of uh, thing happening here. There's like an individual like Steve Kerr, uh, maybe like Gabe Kapler, speaking out for themselves, not necessarily on behalf of their organization, feeling like a, a, a certain like responsibility or calling to do it, but also feeling like they can do it. Like they're not going to get fired. They can get away with it. The Yankees thing I think is interesting because it's an example of the Yankees are a corporation. They're not, mm-hmm. they're, it, it's probably even too like um, narrow to call them a sports team. I mean, they're like a, a huge billion dollar kind of conglomerate and so there's been all sorts of conversation about like how companies position themselves like around the don't say gay bill and all all of this the, all, all of these different issues but there must be a perception joel that there's safety for a corporation and speaking out about this issue especially in the week when um you know more children even more than the you know the the number increased after Steve Kerr's press conference, you know, up to 18 uh, children being killed. Like that, there's, um, you know, a belief among the people who operate the Yankees that they can say this. Maybe they feel like they should say it, but also, again, that they can get away with saying it. And what'll be telling, and I think we probably know the answer to this, is like whether 
they feel comfortable tweeting about gun control in two weeks or in six months. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think because you're probably thinking about this in the same way that I am, that I remember, you know, in the the weeks and months after the George Floyd and all these other, you know, brands, um, professional sports teams, um, even college coaches felt obligated to say something in the moment to, to um, that they that they had to let people know that this was unacceptable and that there needed to be a change, that people needed to listen to each other and there needed to be some sort of like sensible politics to emerge in its wake. And that's not what happened. Um, if anything, there was a backlash, right? So, um, uh, yeah, let's see, let's see if there's still that same energy for this, um, around the midterms, right? Um, if they're still willing to talk about it and put their, put their money and their might behind it, then great. But, um, we're in the middle, you know, we're about to go into a dark period of, in, ter- in terms of media, especially for sports. And so I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dubious as they'll still be talking about this, if they'll still be behind it. But, um, it, I, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay the fact that they said something in the first place, but I'm skeptical that they're going to keep it up over the long haul, if they're going to be in for a real fight. Yeah. I mean, so there are two, there are two factors working against kind of continued outspokenness. Factor number one is that everybody moves on. Even when something horrific happens, people move on to new horrific issues or other kind of banal workaday issues. And the second is it's way, way easier for anyone and everyone to express outrage about something that happened and way harder, especially if you're trying to like triangulate and not make people mad at you and figure Mm -hmm. out a way to appear the word that you said, sensible, to actually mm-hmm. propose anything. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, what do you, yeah, that's, that's kind of like what, uh, that's the like Mitch, Mitch McConnell approach, right? It's to say like, oh yeah, well, um, we're happy to talk about gun control. Like, of course we're happy to talk about it. And then like any actual proposal is like, no, nah, we're not, we're not happy to talk about this. No, not that, not that, not that, not that. Yeah, let's go back to 2019 in Texas, where there was a, a gunman that killed 23 people and injured 23 others at a Walmart in El Paso. And there was a lot of talk in Texas. There was some energy, like, oh, we've got to do something. But like, what actually happened in terms of the laws that were passed um, absolutely did not address um, the problem that, that, you know, that undergirded that that shooting, which is the access to, you know, these, these rifles and these, uh, weapons of war. Um, if anything, it went in the opposite direction. So yeah, man, um, it's like you said, they, you can say things all you want, but until you do things, um, you know, people have the right to be skeptical of the sentiment behind them. Steve Kerr has a huge platform now, um, both in, you know, the final start on Thursday Um, In the lead up to the finals, during the finals, people will be listening to him. I don't know if the, uh, you know, what what do you call it? The inside the huddle thing during the games? I don't know if he's going to be uh, talking about gun control then. Probably not. But like, there's never um, kind of a, a, a time for an NBA coach where people care more about what you have to say than in this kind of two-week stretch. And he's also built up a name and reputation right. preceding this where people want to hear what he has to say regardless. Right, but is it shocking? Like, that's the thing. Like, is anybody really going to take notice if Steve Kerr says it or if somebody like uh, Mark Cuban or, you know what I mean? Right. Like, it, 
it needs to be somebody. Uh, people know where Steve. People can presumably know where Steve Kerr is going to stand on something like this. It would be different if Tony Larusa was the guy that took up the mantle right. going forward, right? Um, and so that's the thing to look for. Like, is is it going to is it going to grow to other people that we didn't see coming? Thank you, Slate Plus members. We'll be back with more uh, next week. <laughs>